in the chairs. Reading from Mark chapter 1, verse 16 to 20. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. And without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. And the second reading is Revelation chapter 3. Verse 14, and it may be found on page uh, 1235. This is a letter to the church of Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, David. Well done. Uh, so, Rich, as I said at the beginning of the service, if you were slightly late this morning, um, Rich is married to Kath, old friends of ours from New Zealand. 
Uh, Rich worked with us, curate, then associate at the church we planted out there. And uh, actually, we saw God do amazing things, didn't we? God did uh, really extraordinary things. And Rich is on the leadership team of New Wine and also the chair of the regional directors of New Wine. And uh, he's, a, he's a great person. I often put down really what happened in New Zealand to God and Rich because um, uh, he, he was absolutely fantastic. And uh, never the only thing with Rich is he, he, he used to drink 20 or 30 cups of coffee a day, decided just to drink one. So put the amount of coffee just into one cup. So if he ever offers you a coffee, say no, because he'll, it will put you in A&E. I can, gu- I can guarantee that. Uh, good morning. That's the, I've never had an introduction like that, <clears throat> ever in my life. Um, it's a great joy to be here. Um, I was thinking, I'm coming to Guildford. I better look smart, because it's Guildford, isn't it? And so I got my best chinos out, and, and then here he is in jeans and a hoodie, and I feel totally overdressed. So, um, uh, um, Mike said, you can talk about anything you like. So I was really tempted just to tell lots of stories about Mike. Um, and then I remembered it's meant to be a sermon, so we'll talk about Jesus. But I am telling some stories tonight at the request of the youth who've sent me some questions. So um, if you want to hear some embarrassing stories and see some photos, actually, of Mike... Um, just Mike, not Bex. Um, they'd come tonight, six o'clock. <laughs> That'd be great. Um, okay, um, I know you know this, but I'm just going to remind you, in case you've forgotten, but these two are amazing leaders. They are extraordinary. One of the things I do with New Wine is I travel around a good part of the country and help leaders, and let me tell you, these guys are amazing. And we had an absolutely amazing time in New Zealand, and it's been a joy to hear what they've done with you guys since they came back. And do look after them, do pray for them, um, do encourage them, because they are gold. Um, I'm going to start my timer. That's just to look impressive. It means nothing. Um, Actually, that's not strictly true, because I'm conscious of the children. But um, I've got some slides. Um, I want to start by telling you a couple of stories to tee us up for what we're going to look at this morning. Um, In September... 1853, a little three-masted clipper slipped quietly out of Liverpool Harbour with a gaunt and wild-eyed 21-year-old missionary aboard, who was headed for a country that at the time was only really just coming into the Christian West's kind of imagination. Um, Only a few dozen missionaries were there. I'm talking, of course, about Hudson Taylor. Bam! He'll be up there in a moment. And as you know, if you know the story of Hudson Taylor, he really pioneered uh, much of the inland mission in China. He was probably one of the greatest missionaries in church history. Uh, And and I'm talking about him because it strikes me as you read his story, this was a young 21-year-old who just had made a decision. He was going to go all in for Jesus. Gets on a boat, goes to the other side of the world, and 50 years later... China was a completely different place. Thousands of people were going out every year to volunteer, to work as part of the team because of what he pioneered. This is a guy who just chose to go all in to mission for Jesus. Um, He says at one point in one of his um, uh, comments in in a newspaper uh, interview, actually, he said this, if I had 1,000 lives, I'd give them all for China. I absolutely love that. If I had 1,000 lives, I'd give them all for China. 
I'd do it a thousand times. I wonder what you'd give a thousand times over for. Here's this young man who just made a decision. I'm going all in. And 50 years later, totally changed the nation. And the fruit of that, if you know anything about recent church history, uh, is still being seen and felt in China, one of the fastest growing churches uh, in the world. In early 2013, a young PE teacher uh, in our church in Worcester felt a growing sense of call to work with more vulnerable children than the ones he was working with. He'd got kind of frustrated, I guess. He was no longer content with teaching in, a, in what is essentially a safe, middle-class, white school, uh, and started to pray, Lord, show me what that might look like. Show me where I'm meant to go. Show me what that project might look like. Give me some, something to go on. And God didn't really speak to him. And I remember him coming to me and saying, I realize, Rich, that I've been praying the wrong prayer. I'm asking God to show me where and when and how, but I realize what God's asking me first is to resolve whether I'll do it wherever, however, whatever the cost. That the real prayer I need to be praying is, God, do something in me so that I would surrender all and give you my all. And so he started praying that prayer and God began to speak. And so one summer he found himself uh, not teaching at the school in uh, Worcester, but using his summer holiday to go and teach PE at an orphanage, a a place called Live Village. Here it is. Uh, That's him, Jonathan on the left, great friend of ours. Uh, And he found himself at Live Village in South Africa, which is uh, an incredible project, uh, teaching PE throughout his summer holiday. Uh, He fell in love with the place. He fell in love with the kids. He fell in love with the girl there, Karita. He's now married to her. And together they now lead uh, this orphanage in Durban. At the root of Hudson Taylor's missionary zeal was this deep love and this deep passion for Jesus Christ. Right at the bottom, when you kind of drill down to what motivated Jonathan, and it's the same with Karita, is this deep love for Jesus. This belief that actually he's called them to spend their life ushering in the things of the kingdom. And so they've got to that place uh, in their lives where they could say, whatever it takes, like, whatever it looks like, we're going to do that. We, we don't want to be the kind of people that play it safe. And they're extraordinary to spend time with because you just hear story after story of cost. Story after story of opposition, but actually they're so alive. Because deep in their hearts they've resolved. It's all for you, Jesus. And so that's what it looks like for them, but they'd say that's the kind of life all of us are called to. One where we get up in the morning and yes, it might be daunting. Yes, there might be cost. Yes, we might be having to pray some big prayers. Yes, we may not know where the next paycheck's coming from. Yes, we may not have a clue what's around the corner. But come on, Jesus. And I don't know about you, I, I don't know you, but, but my guess is that you're here because you want to be part of that. Like there's a gazillion other places you could be uh, this morning, particularly with the snow, but you're here. And so the question I guess I want to ask you this morning is, are you prepared again, or maybe for the first time, to resolve before the Lord that you're going to go all in for him, whatever it costs? Some of you have done that many times and perhaps need to do it again. Some of you maybe have never done that. I know for me, it's not like a one-off thing. It's a normal part of discipleship as far as I can see. 
And it strikes me that all the stuff that comes with church, all the stuff that we think about when we talk about mission, all the stuff around evangelism, all the stuff we can find ourselves doing as followers of Jesus, if it's not out of a place of discipleship and intimacy and, and love of the Father and, and a real desire to serve in response to that love, then, then it's just really hard work. It's absolutely exhausting. And like probably not the best thing you could do with your time because it actually will kill you and it doesn't bring life to other people. But when it's this response to Jesus who gave us everything, who went all in for us, if it's a response to that, if it's a deeply felt conviction, if it's like love's compelling power in us that propels us into that place, then something happens when we say yes to that. We, we start to realize what it is we're made for. We start to become that which God has saved us for. We start to step into what it means to partner with God, to join with him in the renewal of all things, which is what he's doing. You know, God has made a covenant with humanity. And he made it with Abraham, which is that with, with and through you, I will redeem my creation. That covenant is still binding. God doesn't need to do it with us. He could do it all on his own, but he's covenanted to do it in and through his people. And so he's committed to doing it in and through us, you, me. He's up for it. He's game. He's yes. What he's asking is, are you? And are you prepared to go all the way, every day, or not? Uh, you know, I'm really clear. I think Jesus will work with the best that we give him. He'll take what we offer, and he'll do something amazing with it. But what he really wants is us to be fully in. What he really wants is you to say, I will surrender all for the sake of knowing you and serving you. And I'm going to trust you that all the implications of that you will take care of. Because if you've faced death, if you've conquered sin, if you've risen from the grave, then you can do that. And he said, didn't he, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough of its own concerns. I'll promise to provide for everything you need you're okay with me, let's do it. That's how it's going to work. And so the decision really comes down to us. Will we? Will we say yes to Jesus? Not, not when we feel like it. Not on the good day, or just on a good day. Not in those moments when it feels like, actually, this is fairly safe. You know, we've got a bit of money in the bank, and we've had enough sleep, and the kids are behaving, and the security. But also on the kind of day when all of that feels very, very volatile and fragile, particularly on those days, actually. Will we do it every day, not just Sunday? Will we do it with all of who we are? Will we take everything we have, our home, our money, our time? You know, the best way to audit someone's faith and discipleship is, is not to listen to what they say, but it's to look at their diary and their bank account. You know that, right? Are you prepared to be the kind of people that metaphorically, if not literally, will get on a plane and go to another country or get on a ship and go to another country? Are you willing to set sail, leave behind the safe and predictable for the adventure of a lifetime? And, and I guess this is important because not so that the kingdom of God advances because God will do it anyway, but because when we step into that, we come alive. That the life in all its fullness that Jesus talks about, you don't access it just by turning up and hanging out with him because part of what it is to be human is to co-labor with God. And so if you want to become fully human, you've got to get stuck in. 
Like, yeah, hang out with him by all means. That's great. It's wonderful. That's where it starts. And it can just stop there, and that's grace. But actually, the invitation of grace is, because of who you are, step into, into the things of God and live that out. Here's some spiritual gifts. Here's some passion. Here's the power of the Spirit. To be human is to co-labor with God. We're co-creators with God. We're redeeming creation. We're stewards. We've got work to do. Not to please God, but to partner with him. That's what it is to be human. And so the people I meet who are most alive in their faith, more often than not, are the ones who are really stuck into the things of God and are paying a cost for that. And then conversely, when I meet people who say, oh, I'm kind of bored. Like, yeah, not really into church anymore. You know, worship, teaching, ministry, yada, yada. What do I do about that? I start asking questions like, so are you in a small group? Are you with a little group of people who are going to champion each other into the fullness of life? Are you praying big prayers? Like, tell me what you read in the scriptures this morning. And invariably, I get kind of like awkward responses. I'm not telling you anything you don't know this morning, right? I'm just here to remind you. So that's the primary thing about all of this, is that when we say yes to that, we come alive. But actually, God has entrusted the mission of God to his church. And so actually, if we don't do it, not only do we lose out, but so does the world around us. So do those others in this community who have said yes. So I just want to suggest a few things to help you either say yes again or maybe say yes for the first time to this kind of total commitment kind of discipleship, which I know you're up for. Notice a couple of the details from um, Mark, which we read earlier. Um, here, here we are up on the screen, Mark chapter 1. Jesus is calling his first disciples. He says, come and follow me. There's a whole load going on in there, which I think Mike's teaching into later in the year. But they give up everything. They give up their family, their livelihood, their status, everything. They give it all up to follow Jesus. That's what they do. And, and notice a couple of phrases. I just want to highlight them. They're in red on the screen. At once, they left their nets. At once. Jesus says, come, follow me. Leave it all behind. Give it all to me. Trust me. Let's do it. At once. They say, yeah. And yet, how often, if we're honest, do we go, can I get back to you on that, Jesus? Whatever he's asked us to do. Like, I'm going to go and pray about it. It's great, isn't it? I'll pray about that. And sometimes we do need to pray about things, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just need to do them. And we find ways, don't we, to sort of like, we do some financial planning and consult with our friends. And before we know it, we've forgotten what we've even been asked to do. Notice the, uh, the response. Second thing, without delay, he called them. Without delay. Jesus isn't waiting around. He's not going to kind of suss them out. Look, come back in three weeks, have a think. He's like, come on, guys, let's do it. Without delay. He sees them. Without delay, he calls them. Because Jesus is on the move. Jesus is doing what he's going to do, and he's asking us to join in. There's a whole load we could say about this, but it seems clear to me in the scriptures that Jesus isn't... Um, like he's very lovely, don't get me wrong. I'm sure he was great to be around, but he doesn't kind of hold back. He's not like playing it safe here. He's like, I, this is what I'm doing. This is what it is that God's up to. Do you want in on it? 
So a couple of more examples. Matthew 22. Here's the answer to the question. that he's, They're trying to trick him here, the Pharisees. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? If you're such a good rabbi, come on, boil the law down to what is it if there's one thing? And this answer's never been given before. He comes out with this answer. It's gold. And he says this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Three little letters, one tiny word, all. But it makes all the difference. Jesus is really clear. This is what it is. It's all or nothing. Have a look at this. Uh, um, Matthew 12. This is hyperbole. Uh, He's trying to provoke here, but he's very clear. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You're on my team or you're not. Like, there's no sitting on the fence here, guys. Are you going to gather with me? Because if you're not gathering with me, you're effectively scattering. Like, I'm calling you. Are you going to get with the plan? Are you going to come with me? Are you going to gather in the lost sheep of Israel or not? And, and I think all too often I wonder whether we're a little bit in the middle as Christians. Like, we're, we're in, yes, sort of, because we're not out. But are we really in? Or are we kind of going, yeah, but someone else does that bit and that bit and that bit. Like, only you know some of the people in this city that don't know Jesus. You're the only Christian in their life. Only you live next door to the people that you live next door to. Only you work with the people that you work with. Only you rub shoulders with the parents of the kids that your kids go to school with. Revelation 3, which we had read to us, is one of those... uh, Every time I read it, I kind of go, oh, I hope that's never said of me. And I'm sure there are times where it is, but if you know anything about Revelation, there are seven letters uh, to seven churches. It's the early churches in and around that part of the world. But most theologians would agree that seven is the biblical number of perfection. So in a sense, these are specific words spoken to specific churches at a moment in time. But they're also words that are timeless, that speak to the church, global, universal, Catholic, lowercase c, uh, at any given moment in human history. And so I guess as a church leader, I'm often reading them going, if Jesus was speaking to us today through one of these letters, which one would he pick out? And kind of go, look, you've become a bit like this one. Or where am I at? Which would he accuse me of? And essentially this verse here, don't worry about all the spitting out stuff. We're not going to do that. Ask Mike about that. He's he's really good on Revelation. In fact, it's your favorite. Didn't you do it? No, no. Um, I'm getting him into trouble. Um, This little phrase, you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. I kind of think it's a bit like when we say someone's really nice. I don't like it when people say, oh, he's so nice. It doesn't really mean anything, does it? It's like Anglican nice. If if someone says, oh, they're such a nice Christian, I'm like, that's not a compliment. It's another word for lukewarm. You know, I, I want some language like, oh man, they are so generous. They're so brave. They're so committed. They're so faithful, or whatever it is. Or flaky and unpredictable and passive aggressive, but not nice. You know, some nervous laughter. I'm like, 
I don't want Jesus to look at me in the eye at the end of time and go, well done, Rich, thank you, but can I just point out you were pretty lukewarm? I don't want people to go, well, yeah, he's nice. He's quite a good leader. Yeah. I want people to go, man, there's something about Rich. He's on fire for Jesus. I'm going to try and get in and around that. Not because he's the leader, but because I want to be around someone who's hot. I didn't mean to say that, but that's pretty good, right? My wife's sat there going, oh, Lord. Can't, especially in those chinos. Um, so your vision as a church is what? Love God, love people, make a difference. Very good. I'm not sure if I asked our church what our vision is, they'd know. But your vision is to love God, love people, uh, make a difference. I think it's brilliant. Um, I love it because it's super simple. You all remember it and it covers all your bases. Um, I think it's great. Uh, you say in your uh, text, I was reading on your website, you want to build a big family that is Jesus-focused, Bible-centered and spirit-led, ready to transform lives and change the world. Yes. Yes. That's the kingdom of God. That's church. That's biblical church right there. I love it. You go on to say, um, young and old, couple or single, family or empty nester, everyone is in and welcome. Yes. Yes. Because here's the deal. Unless you are all, all in, all of the time, you won't fulfill the big vision that God's given you. You can't. It's massive. My guess is, roughly, I don't know, I didn't do the stats, but if your town is, any, uh, is the same as most places, 97% of the population of Guildford don't know Jesus. That should really keep you up at night. That, should, that stat should get you to your knees, praying. Like, you've got a massive job. And I know you're not the only church in town, but between you, you've got a lot of work to do. It's the same in Worcester. And unless we all go all in to the vision of the church because of a passion for Jesus, then, then actually you won't see it happen. It'll just become hard work and frustrating. So go with it. I, I, I love this picture because it captures for me what I think total all-in Christian discipleship is. Um, it slightly reminds me of our children and having spent 24 hours with the Norrises again, their children. Um, and that's a good thing, by the way. They're full of life. But there's something about that, isn't there? That picture of like, you know, it, it looks crazy. Like, why would you do that? Why not? How much fun? I want to get to the end of my life and be able to genuinely be able to say, the only way this makes any sense is because of what Jesus did. I was just hanging on. I don't want to get to the end of my life and going, oh, I was a nice Christian. I was lukewarm. Boring. Our culture says that you can have it all. But it's actually not true. It's a lie. You can't have it all. You actually can't have everything the world offers. People try. They'll bend themselves, you know, turn themselves into, inside out to try and make it work. They'll do everything. They'll kill themselves. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't have everything that he's offering and everything that the world's offering. You can't. And then if you try and do that, you'll end up compromising. And you don't get any of, enough of that or enough of that. And so you're left in the bland middle going, eh. Super frustrating. Not one thing or the other. Lukewarm and nice. You've got to compromise somewhere. And so the question has to be, as a disciple of Jesus, where are we compromising? Are we compromising on going all in? 
because we want something of what the world offers, which is often a kind of a counterfeit, a false security, a false sense of worth, a false sense of adventure, one that can be taken like that? Or are we going to sow ourselves into the things of the kingdom? Like Revelation 3, are we going to buy gold refined in the fire, the real stuff that comes only from a radical pursuit of Jesus Christ? You've got to decide which journey you're going to go on, which story you're going to live in, which way you're going to adopt. You can't have both. Hudson Taylor, Jonathan McCreary, like, no turning back. And we're going to go this way, and we're going to go all in this way. And we're going to do it because actually it's in that place that we come alive. So, how? Like, assuming you're up for that, assuming, yes, convinced already, Rich, how? And I've thought a lot about this because it seems to me that part of the job of a church leader is just to help people again and again and again choose that practically. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've read, the more I've prayed, I I actually think it's really simple, but really hard. Really simple, but really hard. And it's modeled for us, I think, by Jesus Christ. What does Jesus do? Jesus models, I think, faithfulness and obedience. That's what he did. So I only do what I see the Father doing. Uh, I've come to do the will of my Father. Not your will, sorry, not my will, but your will be done, O God. Even to death on a cross. Faithfulness and obedience. That's what we're called to. Faithfulness is just saying yes again and again and again to intimacy and prayer and following him and putting ourselves into relationship, being faithful to Jesus, keeping our faith in him. And obedience is saying yes to what he asks us to do, whatever the cost, whatever the consequences. So, so notice Mark 9. Um, this is um, the transfiguration. A cloud appeared, covered them. A voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. We like that a bit. And then it says, listen to him. The father is saying, listen to, listen to the son. Do what he tells you to do. And Mary gets in on it. So uh, John 2, the wedding at Cana, you know, the servants are like, ah, there's no wine. What does she say? Do whatever he tells you. It's, It's really simple, but really hard. Faithfulness and obedience. Whatever the cost, whatever the consequences. Whilst agonizing over how to reach the millions of people in China who didn't know Jesus, Hudson Taylor was praying and he was just saying, Lord, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? Come on, show me what I've got to do. And he was kind of wrestling with it and pounding the ground and frustrated. And he says in his, his autobiography, he recalls a moment when God spoke. And here's what he writes. He says, there the Lord conquered my unbelief. And I surrendered myself to God for this service. I told him that all responsibility as to the issues and consequences must rest with him. That as his servant, it was mine to obey and to follow him. Faithfulness and obedience. I'll do my bit, Lord, but you have to do the rest. That's what's required of us. And that puts us in the place where faith is required. It puts us in the place of trust and dependency. We can't do it on our own. We do it together. As family we go. And he says at that point, it was at that point that he started to see the breakthrough. He stopped trying to do it in his own strengths and just 
started doing what he was called to do. Remain faithful to Jesus and be obedient to him. Uh, over the last 12 months, Live Village, back, back out in South Africa, they've come under a number of attacks, literal attacks, from the local community who are jealous of the life that's going on on the village and some of the wealth creation that's happening and all of that. And Jonathan uh, was with us recently and reflecting on this, and he, he said this to us as a church. He said, I would rather be alive in persecution than just existing from Sunday to Sunday. rather be alive in persecution than just existing from Sunday to Sunday. So as we wrap this up, here's two questions that I would encourage you to be asking. Number one, what is Jesus asking me to do? And number two, why don't I do it? And it seems to me that those are great questions to ask of one another in small groups or marriages or friendship groups, whatever it is. What is Jesus asking you to do specifically? And if you're not sure, then work that through. But once you are, or as sure as you're ever going to be, then, then why don't I do it? What's, what's holding me back? What am I afraid of? What cost am I w- unwilling to pay? What, what don't I trust Jesus for in and around that? And work that through. And when you do, that's at the point where you go, okay. And the more you do it, the more you end up with a track record, a story to tell of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And many of you will have those. And we can do it because Jesus himself did it. And I'll finish with this. He doesn't ask us to do something he didn't already do. He was faithful. He did everything that was asked of him. He was obedient unto death. He goes all in for us. He paid the cost, total cost, whatever the implications for him. Trusting in God the Father. That he would raise him from the dead. And he says to you and me, he says, now follow me. Do what I did. Because in that way, you will come alive. And in that way, you'll find yourself right at the heart of what it is that God's doing. And you'll live a life that is just absolutely wonderful. It's often easier to live it in retrospect, because when you're in the middle of it, at times it's flipping scary. But I'd rather be alive in persecution than existing from Sunday to Sunday. Should we stand?